Welcome to the Better Questions podcast. This is episode number two and is the second part on why do bad things happen. If you've not listened to part one yet, I highly recommend that you stop this right now and go back and listen to part one. Today, we're featuring the second part of our interview with Kaylee and Joey regarding their experiences with cancer, and we will be letting their story inform our conversation and our search for a better, more helpful question. We ended the last episode at the point in the story where Joey is diagnosed with his rare form of cancer for the third time. We pick up now with Kaylee's reaction. Yeah, for me, um, like growing up with my sister sick, I never really saw like the hospital side of it because my parents guarded me from that a lot. So like being there the day we were told that he was sick again and then he was in the hospital for a month, it is all kind of blurry. Like I feel like you don't really process it and get thrown into this new lifestyle that's not really new for either of us but we'd gotten so used to things being like normal and like finally thinking like our life was on track and that you know he had beat it for a second time and like who gets cancer like who gets cancer again after that you know like he's he's done and like he's good and you know we've we've had our bad experience and like God is doing great things now because we're engaged and Joey's in nursing school and we're gonna get married and we're gonna move in together and you know he's gonna get a job right when he graduates and like now we finally have a normal life that is traditional and like not weird and like not having somebody be sick and like it's finally at a place where like you know we've gotten through the bad stuff like here's the good and like I think that was the hardest thing for me was like just when things felt normal sorry like you get thrown into this like whole spiral of like I was so used to like having Joey to talk to all the time and he was sick and I think I didn't have that anymore and it just didn't seem fair and like Joey saying this time his perspective was different because he was a Christian and he had these views like I knew that stuff too but I was just so mad and like I was so angry so tired of like all of this stuff and so like with his third time I think like you know he says how I, I I showed him like this Christianity world and like helped bring him to Jesus and kind of in the third time he kind of had to bring me back because I was so distant and like so angry Why do you guys think that this is even a question? When, this is one of the biggest questions people ask. Why suffering? Why do bad things happen? But to ask another why question, why do we want an answer to that? Why do we even have such a desperate 
need to know why bad things happen. I think that as human beings, we're kind of wired to want to know why with everything. Like if you look at a little kid and you hear their conversation, like it's annoying from the parent's standpoint, but everything's why. It's time to get in the car. Why? Because we got to go to grandma's house. Why? Because this. Why? Because that. Why? It's just ingrained in us. We look at the heavens and we want to know what's out there and we want to know why. We want to know why we're here on this pale blue dot, you know, hurling around the sun. Like, And a lot of those questions don't have answers and it frustrates us. This one in particular does more than frustrate us because when we ask it, is when we're feeling pain, either ourselves or feeling pain for a loved one. And it becomes more than just frustrating that we don't know, you know, why, whatever. This is like, we're crying out in pain and anguish. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's a huge part of it, our curiosity but, but another aspect to it that I think a lot of us aren't conscious, conscious of when we first ask the question, but I think it's back there in our brain, is we want to know the answer so we can fix it. Mm. You know, like you ask the mechanic, hey, what's wrong with my car? Oh, this. Okay, let's get that taken care of. The same thing with this question. Why is there evil? Why is there pain? Why did this happen? And if the answer is, well, it's to test you, you can go, okay, well, I'm going to, the answer is I'm going to I'm going to pass the pass test. the test. Or if it's bad things happen to you because you did something wrong. Well, I'm not going to do something wrong. And I think when you, you send this man or yeah. his family to make him blind. And I think there's this thing within us as humans that's like, okay, there's a problem and we're going to fix it. And I think that's why oftentimes when you get someone going through a horrible loss or pain or tragedy in their life, sometimes the people who hurt the most are the people who are trying to fix it, even with good intentions who are trying to just fix this thing that oftentimes can't be can't be fixed with a Band-Aid. Right. Do you think part of it, too, is a sense of justice? And I think what I mean by that is we've, we feel like we deserve certain things. And I know when I say that, I, I sound like I'm being critical of people who think that way, but I'm actually thinking the opposite because if... If I'm a a husband and a father and my wife and kids all die in a terrible tragedy, like I I can't think of anything I could have done as a human to be like, oh, well, I deserved that to happen to me. And so you struggle with this sense of justice of like, well, what I I feel like I deserve good things in life because of how I live but these bad things are happening to me and I want to know why, because it doesn't seem just or fair. Mm. And I think living in our society really perpetuates that because in almost every other aspect of our lives, we can seek restitution or justice. You know, you can take someone to court. If a company has wronged you, you can sue them. Or if you're sick, oftentimes, in our medical advances, we can seek restoration. And I think maybe we've, we've come to this point in our modern society where it's like, in most areas of our life, more than ever in human history, we can get justice, we can get restitution, restoration. But then we find ourselves again at the limits of 
our human work and then we're left with this oh what do you do when you can't just go get this fixed or resolved really quickly and another aspect to this not every awful thing that makes somebody ask this question has to do with death but oftentimes it does mm-hmm. yeah and i think there's also just in us as humans this innate fear and and strange marvel with death something that none of us can escape something that none of us understand and especially if that death happens too soon in someone's life it's so final and not only is it final but it's something it's one, it's the only thing in our life that we have no hope to ever have science fix mm-hmm. like people that do um, cryogenics or something have this strange hope that one day technology will allow them to come back or even with any other problem we can go well one day medical advances will be able to fix that or one day this could be better but not with death mm-hmm. and that is just so unnerving for people um, it's the ultimate brick wall to hit in your thinking mm-hmm. yeah I that's that's interesting you say that one one person i don't remember who but i've heard the argument given when it comes to any type of suffering particularly uh with death people argue well if there's such a good god why does he allow so much suffering all these things and the response was well why are you assuming that a world without suffering is better than the one we have now and like you can you can make a guess but we don't have that world that has no suffering so we have no way to definitively say that would even be better but we just assume in these situations that was bad and it should not have happened and we want to know why and I'm saying I even agree with that thought process, but it's interesting to me of well, why, why do we assume when a young person dies, well, it would have been better if they're still alive on this earth. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it's really interesting to me that nature itself gives us a clue into how death specifically can bring new life in a strange way. Every year we go through seasons. We see death and then resurrection. We see new life come from the ashes. And it's, it becomes this cycle of life. And I've heard it say, said that we as humans tend to have an unhealthy view of death, seeing it as so final and as something negative. When all death leads to a different kind of life. We Mm -hmm. see that over and over in nature and in other aspects of our world and universe. Yet when it's so close to home, when it's ourselves, when it's our family, we can't push past that. And it's really interesting to actually hear how um, Joey and Kaylee, at the end of the interview, started thinking about positives that -hmm. have come out of their struggle Um, all the things that would be different had they not gone through it, 
all the ways they themselves would be different people, possibly not even where they are today or who they are, had it not been for this struggle they went through. I don't think either of them would ever want what happened to them Mm -hmm. to happen again, or they're not glad. But at the same time, they both acknowledge that good has come out of it and, in fact, give the credit to God for for having a plan from the beginning and guiding it. Yeah, I think for me, the struggle is the tension between what you just said in that, you know, there is there is this odd sort of, I don't want to say benefit, because it's, I don't, I want to, I want to phrase it as a benefit, but there's this odd sort of response to death that life has, that things that die bring new life, that there's this tension of there's a beauty there, but there's also the question of, but why, why does why can't there just be beauty in life and not mm. death? You know, like does does life have to come from death? And there's this tension of I see the world that I have, the universe, and it's it bends towards chaos and entropy, and like the universe can be a dark, scary place. You know, there are asteroids and there's black holes and dark matter. Maybe we don't know. And you know what I mean? And like the sun's going to blow up someday and it's like there's bacteria eating at us and not to get all crazy, but like it almost seems like the world's out to get us. But then there's the other side of the tension where, but there's love and there's peace and there's comfort at times and there's rebirth and new life and a baby's laugh. And there's, you know what I mean? Like there's this tension. What do you do? And, and, uh, let, let me ask you this, Andrew. Do you think that there can be beauty without the opposite? Like, for example, what what is tall unless there's short? Right. Or like what what is light unless there is darkness? Like, yeah, you only so you only it, know what light is because of darkness. Yeah. It, and- it, is it possible for beauty to exist without also experiencing it in comparison to brokenness and if there was no brokenness would we even be able to experience beauty as beauty right and i i totally know what you're saying and that's kind of the tension i'm talking about is that unresolved question of does this have to be this way is this the is this the only way it, like is this really yeah. how it has to be and thinking back to what kaylee said in her interview talking about uh, her sister watching her sister struggle with cancer, you know, me and Kaylee grew up in the same church and I knew Taylor when she was going through the cancer. And while I wasn't as close to Kaylee and her family back then, um, just like in a small way, watching Taylor go through her cancer treatment and showing up on church after that with a smile on her face, like Taylor was one of the most like, when she was at church, one of the happiest kids to be there, and she was by far the person going through the most. And just in just in a small way, at that age, when I was in eighth grade, seeing Taylor go through that and the way she responded, it communicated to me on this level at that young age, there's something more going on here. If a girl can go through all that pain and come to church, but also just be so full of life at times, and I, and I know that wasn't I wasn't seeing the full picture. I wasn't seeing Taylor at her worst. So I don't want to speak out of turn, but like encountering Taylor for that brief moment in my life did her pain did in a way 
shows something to me that, you know, there's more to life than just what's here. There's something deeper going on. And I'm not in any way trying to say that what what she went through was worth it to communicate that to me and other people. That's not what I'm saying. But you're right. There is this there is this silver lining to to the pain we go through that you you get hurt, but that hurt could help someone else in need. And there's this cycle but again, there's a tension that I don't know how to resolve. Yeah, the way I've heard it said is that there is light on one side of a tunnel, and you're just going through your everyday life. Then you go into a tunnel, you have a bad experience, uh, the cancer, the death, um, the tragedy, and you're in the darkest part of the tunnel. But there's also light at the end of it, Life goes on, you survive, but the light on the other end seems brighter because you've just been in the dark. It's like your eyes had adjusted Mm -hmm. to the darkness, and when you get on the other side, that same light that you saw before now seems brighter, and it's almost like having experienced a tragedy, uh, there's, there's happiness and joy, then pain and then a greater, deeper happiness and joy as a result of it. And it's almost like just a paradox and an enigma mm-hmm. of how humanity works that often the most joyful people you'll ever meet in life have also suffered the most. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. And what I think is so fascinating about that is... Any person I've talked to, I don't know if you guys had the same experience where you say, tell me your story, like how, tell me about how you've gotten to the point and the person that you are today. Almost never does that person share things like, well, in uh, eighth grade, my parents took me to Disney World and it was amazing and it was a lot of fun. It's always the stories of hardship, suffering, brokenness that they say made me who I am today. It changed my perspective. It made me learn something new. It made me go about life a different way. And I'm who I am today. I still have the scars from that, but also I'm who I am today because of that. And I'm not saying that that's the answer to our question. Well, that's why terrible things happen. I actually think that's a pretty crappy answer to that question, but it's it's something to change our perspective when we're in the middle of suffering of how how is this changing my perspective? How is this making me into a different kind of person? Right. And we're listening to two stories going through that and I think it's important to note that as I've I'm kind of a storytelling nerd and as I've studied the anatomy of storytelling and narratives the thing you learn very quickly is the the parts of the story that don't go well are are the story you know Marty McFly finding a time machine and having fun isn't a story Marty McFly going back to save his parents marriage that's the story you know what I mean or like Harry Potter finding a wand and using magic isn't a story. That, I mean, it's cool, but that's not a story. A story is the story of a kid who lost his parents and then finding friendship and like life through that. The parts of the story that don't go well are the best stories. You know, a story of Joe Schmo waking up one morning, 
getting an A on his test, getting the girl that he's always wanted, and then getting the scholarship, the end, that's right. That's not a story. I am also a storytelling nerd, and Aaron Sorkin says that how your characters respond to conflict, that is who they are. It's not the character description that you wrote for them beforehand. It's how they respond to their conflict. That's mm-hmm. who they are. Having just come out of Easter weekend, one may say there can be no resurrection without crucifixion. That is true. Mm. But but honestly, I think that is the part of the Christian story that I think at the end of the day, even when sometimes the Christian story makes no sense to me and I go through those moments of doubt or like wrestling, the thing that makes it stand out is yeah, there is no easy answer to pain, evil, suffering, all that stuff. And the Bible has some insights, but it never goes, and this is it. But it kind of does in the sense that it all leads to this guy who was innocent. And we come to find out this guy is God in the flesh, a God who didn't want to stand apart from the suffering that his creation goes through, but he enters into the suffering of his creation and bears it all. And he, he suffers with us. And I think at the end of the day, praying to a God who, who says me too, in response to our pain is, is worth it. I'm so glad that you said that because I actually think that's the most fascinating part of the conversation is that when we look at of all the things God could have done to reconcile his creation, God doesn't think that the best answer is to come into this world and eradicate suffering. God thinks the best thing to do is to enter into this world and experience suffering with us. And I, I can't fully comprehend that, but it's profound. And sometimes it's better than any answer because it's not an answer of God just saying, well, Andrew, here's why. And here's 12 points. Right. It's God saying, yeah, me too. I went through that. Yeah. And not just what's amazing too about like the Trinity is that God as a triune being, experience that suffering, both physically experiencing Mm -hmm. the pain of it, and also at the same time, paradoxically, as a father losing a child. Like, we serve and we love a God who says me too, not just to the people that are feeling pain, that are in pain, that are suffering because their body hurts, me too, but also to people who've lost a loved one, me too. And um, yeah, gosh, I'm so glad that the conversation went that direction because if you look back really at this, the whole narrative the Bible's telling, early on in Genesis, the book starts with murder. It starts with Cain killing Abel with people inflicting suffering on themselves as a mankind 
And over and over from that point on, we do the same thing. It's one group of people rising up and enslaving another group of people. Israel is in Egypt, right? Then they're in Babylon. It's just Mm -hmm. over and over suffering, pain, death. And like we've been saying, God entered into that instead of wiping it away. He knew because we put that into motion, that was the only way to offer true hope was not to get rid of it by snapping his fingers and it's all magic. Mm-hmm. Hugs and puppies. But me too. Yeah, uh, Chris, you and I a while back did a small group series on the book of Job. And I think it'd be amiss if we talked about suffering, but then it mentioned the book of Job. And what I got out of that study was the book of Job does something interesting where it almost plays off of the answers the Bible gives elsewhere on the topic of suffering. You look at uh, the Psalms or Proverbs, there's this understanding that, that, you know, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And that is explicitly said in, in the scriptures, in the Proverbs. But then the book of Job comes along and almost says, well, that's not the full picture. Because here's a guy who, to our knowledge, did nothing to deserve this. And he's going through pain in the whole book, 40-some chapters of just wrestling with this. His friends saying, you did something wrong, didn't you? And Job being like, no, and then having faith, losing faith. And the thing that stuck out to me is at the very end of the book of Job, after God talks to Job and doesn't doesn't give him the answer of to why bad things happen, but after encountering God, Job says this, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And it's almost like Job gets to the end of his journey. And after all the pain, the suffering, and the unanswered questions, what Job gets out of it is, well, now I've actually seen you after all this. Not when my life was perfect and I had all the kids and all the cattle and all the money. It was after this that I finally saw you. And that's really moving to me. Yeah, Andrew, I think that's so powerful. And one scripture that comes to mind uh, when you were saying that is actually in Philippians. And it's in chapter 3. And uh, he says this in verse 7. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. And so somehow to also attain the resurrection from the dead. I think that's a powerful scripture. Paul saying everything else in this life I consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And not only knowing his resurrection, but the only way to truly know his resurrection and to share that with him is to also share in his suffering. 
so obviously being diagnosed a third time with the same exact cancer that had not been beaten with three years of chemo and then two and a half years of even more intense chemo with concentrations that are almost impossible to think of. But um, So the third time, they're like, okay, obviously this cancer is not responding to chemo anymore. So we're going to do six months of chemo to make your bone marrow suppress, and then we're going to give you a bone marrow transplant. Which we had heard the words before, and I had never imagined that I was going to be a bone marrow transplant recipient. Um, they're extremely intense. They don't like to do them because there are a ton of risks. Um, a lot of uh, there are there is a mortality rate for bone marrow transplant. It's not an easy procedure, but they needed to change my whole immune system because it was just not working, obviously. So six months of intense chemo, followed by a bone marrow transplant. Um, so the transplant consisted of the first 10 days. So the first thing you do is they put you on isolate an isolation room. And you're in that room for an extended amount of time, and you get eight people who can visit you. And even then, it's restricted. Like, you're in contact, you're on isolation gowns, you're on isolation procedures, only allowed to eat, like, very minimal amount of foods. Um, so, yeah, the first 10 days were... 10 days of getting radiation twice a day, and on top of that, um, the heaviest concentrations of chemotherapy that I've ever had in my whole life. I can't even tell you how many days it was of fevers, extreme pain. Um, there was a point where I almost like stopped breathing. Um, it was it was intense. I mean, I remember there was even one day that they had called up. Kaylee and my whole family because they didn't know if I was going to make it out that day. So, um, I was in there for another 30 days in isolation. So a grand total of in the bone marrow transplant of 40 days. Exactly. Um, and then after that, it was recovery time, which sounds like it should be easy, but it's actually probably another hard, long process um, I was on isolation at my house for six to eight months, couldn't leave the house, which is hard for a 22-year-old um, to be in a house with his mom for six to eight months where he can't leave. And anytime I wanted to step outside, I had to wear a mask, be in the shade. Um, I was on, I, could, I wasn't really eating that very well because it's just part of the transplant and process, so I was on something called TPN, and it's basically just nutrition through an IV line. That's where I was getting all my nutrition. I was on IV fluids for 24 hours, pretty much for a long, for a few months. Um, so a lot of meds, a lot of being sick, a lot of in and out of the hospital, and... Can I say something? Yeah. So, like Joey said, he had a bone marrow transplant donor which is also another huge part of the story that, like, we believe that God has had Joey's back and has been orchestrating something even bigger since a long time ago. So um, the donors for bone marrow transplants, they like to test your biological siblings to see if anybody is a match. And so luckily Joey has five biological siblings, um, 
three sisters, two brothers. And so they tested all five of them to see if anybody was a match at all. And, you know, sometimes people don't even have a match in their siblings at all. And even if they, they do, it's maybe they are not, like, the best match, but it's good enough that, like, okay, hey, like, this transplant could be successful. And so we were at the hospital, and they told us that they had gotten the matches back, and we found out that all three of Joey's sisters were 10 out of 10, 100% matches, which they said has never happened. Like, they have never heard of such a thing of one person having three perfect matches for a bone marrow transplant. And so um, they looked at all three of his sisters, and they, I mean, they tried and did their research to determine who would be the best match. And Joey's youngest sister, Noelle, it's, this is why, like, we know God has been watching out for this whole situation for a long time. She, so Joey had just finished treatment when he was six years old, and his mom had his youngest sister. And when she was born, they wanted to save her umbilical cord. Just, you know, you've had a son who's sick. We'll put it in the bank and just bank it for you for free. Like, it's there if you need it, but... If somebody else is a match to this umbilical cord, like, it's it's going to be gone. The umbilical cord is important because there's stem cells in the umbilical cord that are very versatile and can be used for stuff like bone marrow transplants, um, a lot of other medical marvels. But. Yeah, and so when they found out Noel was a match, they went back to see if the umbilical cord was even still usable. I mean, it had been in this bank for 16 years so they didn't really know if there was a high chance of it being good to even use and um they went back to look at it and pretty much it was in perfect condition to be able to be used as a transplant for a transplant so i mean since joey was an adult not one umbilical cord just one umbilical cord could like complete his transplant so they used the umbilical cord and they took marrow from her hips to put into Joey to do this transplant, which, you know, saved his life. So, like, God knew back then and, like, worked his way into making sure that this was saved because, I mean, God knows. Like, he knew Joey would need it one day. And even though we didn't know it and we didn't see it, and it was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, his mom was just like, sure, you can save it. But, like, Joey had ALL. Like, he's cured now. Like, he doesn't. He's not ever going to need this, but sure. So, like, that's just another cool part of the story is that all of that happened so long ago and that, you know, he needed it. Um, Right now, I'm actually still in the recovery stage, which means, like, I mean, it takes a very long time for the bone marrow transplant um, to really sit in your body and to be able to be up to normal functioning um, performance. So right now I'm, I'm on track with my health. Um, everything seems to be going well so far. I mean, it's just a day-by-day thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's working. My, it's showing progress. Um, I'm still retaining 100% of my bone marrow cells, which is a big deal how much I'm, you're retaining. And, yeah, so far the um, doctor, doctor is so far optimistic. Yeah, we're coming up. In June, it'll be two years since his transplant, which is really, really cool. 
Um, we're coming up on our first anniversary. We got married last May, um, which we didn't ever really know if that would be able to happen. So it's really cool. We had a beautiful wedding. Um, Joey's in his nursing program. He got to go back to school and is going to be finished with his nursing program this year. Um, What would you say to someone going through a similar hardship? I think the perception is, I mean, it's it's a day-by-day thing. I mean, some. I wish I could sit here and tell you, you know, my faith has been rock solid every day, every hour of every day. I've never blamed God for anything. I've never been angry at him, yada, yada, you know, the whole nine yards. But, um... I can't, I can't sit here and tell you that. I mean, it's going to, it's a day by day thing. I try my best to, you know, trust in God and, and do my best. And you know what? Some days I, a lot of, most days I fail miserably and it's usually Kaylee or someone else that brings me back, you know? And I mean, that's the thing. I think don't, don't go into a situation thinking that you have to be perfect or whatever, you might see in social media, I mean, pe- people post the good times, you know. Everyone has the bad times. They have the ups and downs and just take it day by day and do your best to um, trust in Jesus. And Yeah, I mean, your faith is going to be tested yeah. when you're going through these really, really hard things. Um, it's hard to see the good in the situations and to see, like, how, like, how is my life going to be better after this? Um, you know, when Joey was diagnosed last, we didn't really know what the plan was. And there have been many things like throughout his sickness and then even him being well again. And just with his school, like the timeline now is so much better and we're going to be in a better place when he's graduated. And, um, I don't know what I would say to somebody going through. I don't know. Like, it's easy to give all the quotes and stuff, but... I think the thing that we've really dealt with the most is it's really a day-by-day thing. Yeah, and I mean, like, you you really do have to trust God. And I, I dealt with a lot of worrying and anxiety, and I felt like I was bearing all of this on my own. And, like, you can't. Like, you can't bear of it, all of it on your own. Like, you really have to place your worries and your anxieties on God. And just, like, of course it's hard to do that all the time. But sometimes you just have these days where you're like, you know what? Like, God's got this. Like, I need to stop worrying and stop trying to control and plan and make all of these big life decisions without even thinking about, like, what God has in store and, like, what his plan. Because, like no matter what you go through, like his plan will be glorified and what he has in store for your life. Like he knows. And even when you can't see it, that's the hardest thing is like to have this blind faith that like, he's going to take care of it and take care of you. And even if it's not in the way you would choose, you know, even if it's, even if it comes with a lot of heartache and a lot of really hard times and sadness and worry and anxiety, like want to say it all works out but like he helps you get through it even if it's hard was there anything that happened to you that you could say looking back now was God moving or God acting yeah definitely um 
So, like I said before, I wasn't a Christian until I met Kaylee. So that was about, that was the second time I had been diagnosed. I was 18 and a half years old, you know. But um, in high school growing up, I wasn't a Christian yet, and I wasn't close to God at all. And, you know, it was more about my friends, what we're doing for the weekend, um, sports. I hate, I just didn't, not like I wasn't good at school, I just didn't care about it. Like, I really didn't care about it. And, um, so, it's funny, because right before I got diagnosed, I was like, you know what, I don't like school, I'm going to go into the military, and I'll just, I'll just decide what I'm going to do later, you know, like, or maybe I'll just stay in the military, whatever, I don't feel like doing school, and, um, so I was meeting a Marine recruiter, and, you know, I had, I thought I had my whole life set, and then, once I got diagnosed, once I became a Christian, it was like a complete 180, like, I was like, okay, I think God wants me to do something in medicine. I didn't I didn't know exactly what yet, that I was going to be a nurse. And I know that he wants me to do well in school. He wants me to try my best. And he wants me to trust in him. I mean, like, my I, every, I can't even, it's almost, like, unexplainable how much it changes when you're a Christian. Because literally everything, your whole mindset just changes. I mean, like, I realize what God is calling me to do, or at least I think I do, I try, (laughs) and, you know what, and just besides that, like, I just, like, look at the story, and, like, the fact that, you know, we had this curable cancer, and then we got this chance to bank my sister's um, umbilical stem cells, which the reason why they like those are better than just regular bone marrow is because they are so versatile, and they're less at risk to be rejected, which means less risk for the patient to, to potentially die. And, I mean, like, the fact that we've got those banked for free, otherwise we wouldn't have been able to bank them at all. Like, he had this plan in motion. You know, I mean, I met, the, I met my wife when I was 10 years old. We've gone through similar situations, different sides of the spectrum, and I ended up meeting her through having this horrible disease, cancer, you know? I mean, who would have thought that something good like that would come out of having cancer three times? Or who would have thought that me getting cancer would lead me down to the road of me meeting my wife who had introduced me to Jesus? Like, you can't tell me Jesus didn't have, like, some sort of play in that game right there. He was setting that up, for sure. Yeah, and I just, I mean, I think about myself, and I don't even know what my life would be, like, if my sister would have never gotten sick, you know? And I couldn't even tell you where I would be, and, like, it's really shaped, like, my whole entire life. Like, like Joy said, who we got to marry and being married to each other, and, like, even with my job with working with kids, and... So I was having a hard time. I always try to think of a better question before we start recording so that I can be prepared. You cheater. Yeah, I know. I was having a hard time thinking about a better question for this one. Um, But, and maybe this can just get the discussion going, but where my mind started going is two ways. One, either the best question is actually no question, which would be kind of a twist on the whole thing. Like, to just not say anything, but be 
with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the second idea is similar, is asking a question that calls to action, like instead of why do bad things happen, it's how can I bless someone going through a hard time? Mm-hmm. Or what can I do in the midst of my suffering to right. help someone else or to... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a wording, I guess, I have kind of in my head would be something along the lines of like, what, there's maybe a better way to word it, but like, what can God do with this? Like, if we, if we, if we talk about a God who redeems brokenness, we can talk all day about why the brokenness happens and have no answer to that. But we could, we can say, well, what ways is God bringing redemption from this? And if that's, I'm now able to have more compassion and empathy for someone else who's suffering, or, you know, I'm able to use my story to help other people who are going through it or, you know, whatever it might be like, that's, that's a question that not only is a good one, but is answerable. Yeah. I think, I think we're in the right direction. I mean, even if you look at that story in the book of John, where Jesus approaches the blind man and his disciples are like, what, what did this guy do to deserve this? Or what did his parents do to make him deserve this? Almost this, retribution theology of do good things, good things happen, bad things, bad things happen. And Jesus kind of sidesteps the question and he's like, what do you, what do you mean? Like no one did anything to get this, this, this happened. So my father's work can be shown or something like that is obviously a paraphrase. And it's almost Jesus saying, well, forget that question. Forget that question. The more important question is what can God do through this man or through this situation? And I, I think, I think if we're, we are going to ask a question, I think that's the question is, what, what can God do yeah. in the midst of this suffering? Yes. What can God do in the midst of this suffering to, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 and like, and I, I think, ahead. I think that's not to like defend my question, but I think that's, that's an appropriate question because it's not assuming what God does is, the thing you want. Mm. You know I mean? Sometimes what God does through the suffering isn't the, the, the healing or the good news at the end of the day. But we know through the story of Jesus that God is doing something. And ultimately, God did something in response to all this pain and badness in the world, and that's suffering himself. So le- let me ask this. Do you think... I I feel like there's got to be a way for there to be two good questions. And in my mind, here's what they are. There's the in it question and the after it question, because I, I, I don't know that like while I'm watching my child, like, be hooked up to a machine in a hospital slowly dying that the best question is like what can god do with this maybe maybe a year from then that's the best question but maybe right then there's a different best question i don't know what that one is 
I don't know if it's like I think I, don't I think going back to what Kaylee and Joey have expressed in their interview, I think I think we've we've answered it in two ways. Dan, I think your kind of non-question was actually a good question. When you listen to Kaylee and Joey talk about what was the most helpful thing through all their their challenges was people just being there for them and not giving them answers or asking them questions other than how can I help you? I think maybe that is the in it question, but the out it question, when you look back and you can see what's happened, you hear that in Kaylee and Joey. I loved hearing Joey talk about how now that he's at this point, he looks back and he's so thankful that he found Kaylee and he found God. And, and it's, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's not maybe been easier but it's been different to go through the cancer once again with a relationship with Jesus and with God than before. Okay, so what if we took this slightly unique approach? I like the idea of the non-question. We've, we've just spent a lot of time talking about how God is a God who, of all things God could have done, comes to experience the suffering. And we've used the phrase, I like, he can say me too. So what if the in it question is not a question, it's a statement of remembering that like God is present and gets it in like, it's a statement really of, I don't know why, uh, and that's okay. And I'm sure God at some point can do something with this, but I'm not at the point to try to answer that question right now. I just need the statement. I don't know. Like, I feel like there's something there. I think that goes right along with what Joey said at the very end. He said, it's a day by day thing over and over. Mm -hmm. He said, it's a day by day thing. Take it day by day and put faith in Jesus. And I think you're right. I think when you're in it, there isn't actually a helpful question. No matter what question you ask, it's not going to help. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and we haven't really said this yet, I don't think, but, you know, Andrew and I, when we've had these conversations, have always said, pretend you got an answer. Tell me one answer that would actually be helpful. Like, pretend God said, okay, well, here's the reason why I decided to let this person die. I There are no answers that would be helpful so you'd be like oh okay that makes perfect sense i'm not upset i'm completely content now yep yeah 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 so when you're in it i think there is no question but not only do we think about maybe five ten years down the road after what question can you ask but also what can what's a question that people can ask when it's not them directly that's suffering Mm -hmm. but it's Mm -hmm. a family friend or it's someone at church you care about or it's your neighbor is there a question that actually helps both of those both of those camps like that you can ask for yourself post mm-hmm. a suffering and that you can ask to help a right. neighbor who's suffering well i don't think this is a question that if you if someone you know was going through this you would verbalize to them because it would come across weird but i think if you are near someone in your life who's going through a, a type of suffering i think a question you can ask is how can I be Jesus right now? Mm. And in the sense that Jesus bore all of it on the cross, he did tell us repeatedly that that is our model as well. I mean, 
when we take communion, that's kind of what we're communicating. Just as Christ was, it was broken and his blood was poured out. We participate in that, in that breaking of ourselves and pouring ourselves out. So I think when we see someone in pain, the question we have to ask ourselves is like, how can I be Jesus to them right now? Yeah. In light of all that, like what's been going on in my mind is I'm wondering if there's a question that again, can wrap both of those camps into one the the i've suffered but it was a few years ago or a neighbor is suffering and i'm just wondering if the question could be as simple as what can i do and what can god do in this situation Mm -hmm. what can i do so look at it from somebody that suffered but it was a few years ago they're they're kind of beyond the the initial hardcore waves of grief they can ask well what can i do now and what can God do through it? How can God use me to use this situation for good? Or how can God turn this situation for good? So it's more of a how. How or a what? What can I do? And what can God do through this situation? And then the same if you just know or are near a family friend uh, or a neighbor who's having a hard time, you can ask, what can I do? And what can God do right. in this situation? You just you have to be careful that your what can I do isn't assuming that what can I do to fix it or make everything right. perfect. Right. It's, it's what can I do to be with them right now walking through it. Yeah. Or And maybe that's literally your question. How can I be here for you? Exactly. Yeah. That's why I guess in my mind the emphasis was on can, not on I. So it's not what can I do Right. because yeah. I'm going to be the superhero. It's what can I do? And I, I think that's helpful because our goal ultimately with all these questions is to ask questions that lead to action and aren't, don't get caught up in the intellectual debate, but get get into the how can I be Jesus in the world right here, right now? And I think that question does that. And I think anyone of any theological leaning, like I hope we have listeners who don't just all think the same thing as we do, but have a diverse theological understanding any any theology can ask or say me too. Anyone of any yep. theological bent can including just including no theological bent. And no theological bent can sit there with someone who is suffering and, and suffer with them and, and, and put a hand on them and walk through it with them without giving them a bunch of answers. I think anyone can do that. And I think if we start getting into the habit of that, we can we can in in the church community, in just normal communities can get rid of these answers that cause more harm than good and just walk through things with people. And if you're a believer, it seems that's actually where you find God. You don't find him in the answers. You find him in the, the dirt, the pain, the blood and the sweat. And I think those questions or non questions show that. That's awesome. I don't remember where I heard this, but it comes to mind that you find God at the bottom of the pit. Mm. Or what you shared once with me, Andrew, is you saw a church sign Mm. that said, God is nowhere. And you thought, that's a strange thing to put on a church sign. And then you looked at it closer and realized that actually all the letters were smushed together. There were no spaces between the words. And when there's no spaces between the words, you get to choose how you read it because 
God is nowhere can actually also be read mm-hmm. as God is now here. And so often it's in the moments in life when we feel like God is nowhere that in reality he actually is now here. He's he's in the midst of the suffering. That's why you didn't see him. Mm-hmm. You you weren't looking for him in a place you didn't think he would be, which is right smack dab in the middle of the pain and the suffering you're feeling. Right. Right. So I think, to wrap it all up, I don't think there is an easy answer to this question, and I think this is a question that that will be asked and has to be asked, but I think I don't think this is the last question you can address with this. And I think you have to... You have to just walk through the suffering with other people. That's the model Christ laid out for us. And you just have to say, me too, because that's the response God gave us, was me too. And I think if we can model that that movement, maybe maybe we can be more successful in the church to, to wrestle with these questions. something else I hadn't thought about until recently is that my bone marrow stay was exactly 40 days, which I didn't even think about it at the time, but it was like, someone had brought it up to me, like, you know, Joey, like, they went up to me, like, you know, like, 40 days is like a biblical term and number for days of judgment and, you know, testing. So, I just, I that like once someone said that to me you know I got goosebumps and instantly it was like okay God's obviously telling me I went through a period of being tested and judged in those 40 days so I mean just all the time it, I just it keeps on wowing my mind and I think that because I'm a Christian and because I'm looking for like this godly wisdom and not just an wisdom that I am more open-minded to seeing what God's plan is has been for me throughout the years.